the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Chase that dream, not the meme. Welcome to Dreams Not Memes Podcast. Hello everyone, this is another episode of Dreams Not Memes. Today we are here with my friend Jen from Newfoundland and Labrador, which is in Canada, if you did not know. Jen is a hunter, and today we're going to learn about hunting and her story. How's it going? Oh, it's going really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, taking the time to spend it with me. Anytime, anytime. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into hunting? Sure. So I guess how I got into hunting ties into a lot related to where I'm from. So Newfoundland and Labrador, as you said, I live on an island called Newfoundland up in the North Atlantic um, off the coast of Canada. And it's a very isolated place. And in order to get food here, really it relies on plane or an eight hour boat ride. Um, Sometimes uh, weather comes in or global events like a pandemic (laughs) occur. And that, as we know, really cuts off how things move around our planet and, um, and how we can get supplies. So growing up, I grew up in a family that relied mainly on wild game for our food. And basically, if I didn't eat wild game when I was growing up, I didn't eat. (laughs) So it was um, moose, black bear, caribou, codfish, salmon, trout, all of that rabbit. That's what I grew up on um, eating as a child um, and continued as an adult. Uh, So through that, I I really had the, um, it, it was fostered in me really that being able to harvest your own food is food security, which is important here. And it's also really healthy. Uh, So it's organic, it's free range, it's good for the environment, it's good for animal welfare. And so all those things really are how I had hunting instilled in me and how I continue to do it. Gotcha, gotcha. And just out of curiosity, do you farm as well? Or did you grow up farming? Uh, not really, no. Um, my parents always had a little garden, but it wasn't really much of a vegetable garden. I, I do have to say we have snow on the ground about seven to eight months of the year. So it's it's quite a thing to tackle a farm or, or a garden up in these parts. But um, lately, we've been getting into it a little bit with our daughter through my uh, mother and father-in-law. And we were able to grow a few two-inch long carrots <laughs> and a few... Um, coin-sized onions. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're kind of getting started on it, but it's it's a bit of a rough go sometimes here. I hear I hear And And did you grow up in Newfoundland as well? I sure did. Yeah. Born and raised on the island here. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. And in terms of just the hunting community and like growing up, you know, in Newfoundland, are most people hunters or is this just unique to your family? No, it, it's very much... Um, ingrained in the culture here that um, people go out and harvest their own food, um, be it animals or again, plants if they can. But um, moose were actually introduced to the island back in the early 1900s as a source of food for us. Um, Because the government acknowledged that it was hard to get food to the island. And so they wanted to give the provincial people something to be able to sustain themselves with. So by the 1940s, the moose population had grown enough so that there was enough to go out. And moose hunting is really deeply ingrained in in the culture here. Wow. Wow. And I mean, meanwhile, visiting Maine to see a moose is like a magical thing. Because that's, unless you're in North Maine, you don't see moose that often. 
Right. Well, here, for example, um, I live in the middle of kind of a national park. And so normally there's no hunting in national parks. So the moose population exploded here. And there was a time up to about 10 years ago when in a 30 kilometer stretch of road, so probably 20 miles, you could see up to 67 moose on the on the highway. It was like a gauntlet trying to get through the moose to get from point A to point B. Um, so the, uh, the population was quite high since then they've allowed hunting in the national park because moose were eliminating the forest here. Um, and the national parks are established to protect things like the forest. So once you have a non-native species eliminating native species, like the trees, you need to do something to restore balance. So in the past 10 years or so, there has been a moose hunt in the national park for the food. So, uh, that has helped reduce the population and road accidents a lot. <laughs> True, true. And like, what are the most commonly hunted animals or consumed animals in, in your area? Yeah, in our in our area, certainly moose would be number one. Um, after that, black bear, I would say, um, caribou. Those are the three big game species that we have. And then there's a lot of um, fishing here, around here. So like codfish, trout, salmon. There's some small game catching too, like um, like rabbits, snowshoe hare, we call them rabbits, um, ptarmigan, which are like little birds, grouse, that they almost look like chickens. Um, so yeah, and, and lots of other things too, but a, a huge variety wild game is is the basis for a lot of uh, a lot of food in, in our area. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and lastly, like, what was it like learning how to hunt while growing up? Um, it, it was kind of like, not something foreign to me, because I was kind of brought up around it my whole life. So I didn't know the difference, really. So one thing I didn't like, and I'm starting to not like it again, is the really early mornings, <laughs> I'm starting to become more of a night owl. So the early mornings are a bit tough for me. Um, not being able to talk or make noise, I really didn't enjoy that. Um, because I was a bit of a chatterbox and having to watch every step um, walking through bogs in Newfoundland where your boots get stuck in it, it's slurpy. <laughs> That's a hard thing to do. You can't make a lot of noise when you're trying to hunt an animal. So um, I found that to be annoying, but though, like, that's the kind of thing that I love now trying to minimize my presence and try to think and act like an animal and uh, make sure that they don't know I'm there when I'm going to harvest them um, so that it's you know, clean and ethical and humane. And if they don't know you're there, that's the best way in, in my eyes. Understandable, understandable. Let's learn more about your story after this quick break. Quick message. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Dreams Not Memes. Please make sure to follow Dreams Not Memes podcast on your preferred streaming channel or on Instagram at Dreams Not Memes podcast. To support Dreams Not Needs podcast, feel free to contact me at adaywithoutlove at gmail.com for advertising or sponsorship opportunities. Now, let's get back to the show. You mentioned this earlier about ethical hunting. What is the difference between ethical and non-ethical hunting? For me, ethical hunting just really means having the utmost respect for the quarry that you're going after, treating it with respect, treating it with reverence. Um, for me, making sure that my equipment is fine-tuned and on so that I can deliver 
a, a quick and humane um, shot placement so that uh, the, the animal is out quickly and you know doesn't run off wounded. Um, I mean, sometimes accidents do happen, but when your equipment is on and, and you're on and you've practiced, the chances of that are, are really slim. Um, and uh, yeah, just just how how you treat it and how you speak about it, and um, just just how how you feel about it in your soul, and how that translates to your interactions with people that you're hunting with, to the environment, and to the creature that you're harvested that will sustain you. Um, to me, that that encompasses it. Gotcha, gotcha. And what are some of the best practices for hunting in your area? Um, the best practices, I guess, would revolve around being aware of things like the weather, being aware of animal patterns, maybe, um, and what is required, like the minimum requirements and making sure that you surpass that in terms of caliber of weapon and things like that. Um, being aware of all the regulations, um, making sure you've got all the right permits and everything. All those things tie into the best practices. Gotcha, gotcha. And you mentioned like before we started this podcast that you were in Alberta and now you're here. What At what point in your hunting life did you start hunting in other parts of Canada or the world? That's a good question. So um, we love to travel, my husband and I, and we've been together since we were 15. And uh, so we both grew up enjoying the outdoors and hunting and fishing and trapping. And part of our courtship was really going out fishing, going out rabbit catching, going out duck hunting. And um, as we grew older together and began to have more disposable income, um, we, we knew we loved to travel. And part of traveling for us is experiencing the field to table lifestyle of the areas that we go to. So when we go to places, we really enjoy um, to experience kind of like if someone came to Newfoundland and we took them out, out moose hunting, we'd go harvest a moose, we'd bring it home, we'd prepare it, we'd serve them a meal. And that way we really get an idea of the culture of the place and the types of animals that they have and the kinds of way that people who live off the land live and, and eat. Um, so when we started to um, travel, we decided we'd like to incorporate that uh, into it as well. So that's, and, and in Newfoundland, like I mentioned, our big game species were uh, our, our moose, caribou, and black bear. And I had tried things like elk before or deer, but we don't have it here. So really the only way to bring, to get some in our freezer is to go out and get it ourselves. And so we always bring it home with us and we prepare it here. We have freezers full and we share it with our community and our friends and our family. So they get to try different free range organic proteins that they wouldn't normally otherwise be able to, to try. So that's a, a cool part we enjoy. True. True. And I, and I love that you brought up the, the free range aspect because one, like I've never heard of like consuming black bear um, and also like coming from Philadelphia and, and Pennsylvania, the, the most free range thing we have is a cheesesteak. Uh, <laughs> And a lot of the the animals you're, you're hunting are are literally free range. And they are. Do you know any of the the? Actually, let me rephrase this. Do you know any of the health benefits to that? Well, certainly, when something is free range and organic, meaning it's not being fed pesticides or chemicals and things like that, um, that's not entering your system. We all 
Um, well, we've seen studies and we know about the detrimental impacts of things like antibiotics and hormones and chemicals entering our body through what we eat, whether that be meats or plants. And so by ensuring that we are consuming free range and organic um, proteins and meats, we're eliminating at least that much going into our system. So that's, that's really important to us. And the whole free range aspect is important to us as people who care about animal welfare. You know, people think, oh, hunter, they don't care about animal welfare, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Like everything we do um, is about ensuring the, the ethical and the humane nature of the harvest. And the fact that these animals are living wild and free lives, they're not penned up in cages, shitting on one another's heads for their entire lives. Um, that means a lot to me um, to know that I'm going out into the wilderness and I'm able to harvest an animal from out there who's living, who has lived a wild and free life. Um, we t usually target or we try to target older animals who might not have a lot of years left anyway. Um, so they've passed on their genetics to the next generation. And, you know, in the wild, death isn't peaceful or pain free. They don't have they don't have, you know, hospices and pain management like humans or even like our pets do or tame animals. Death in nature is pretty frigging cruel. And um, the fact that we go after would target an animal that's older near the end of its life anyway, we, we feel that a, a quick ethical bullet that puts them out quickly is far better than the alternative, which is dying by disease or starvation or being chased and eaten alive by animals who are chewing on it as it's trying to run. Um, to us, that's, that's a better alternative and we prefer that in the meat that we eat. What I'm hearing is that I mean, and it's very obvious in our conversation that you hunt for sustenance, not for sport or gain. And like, I don't like want to take this angle, but one can almost argue that the most sustainable way to like reduce carbon emissions is to produce and manufacture our protein by hunting for sustenance and not farming for factory, which causes a lot of waste and you know, it doesn't really treat the animals very ethically and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I certainly um, have seen and know of more regenerative um, agriculture in terms of farms, re regenerative farms um, and things like that. So I think there's more of that, which is which is really great. But yes, certainly when I go into my backyard, my literal backyard and harvest a moose and lug it out on my back, put it in my freezer and butcher it at my house, the carbon footprint is literally zero. It, it's it's nothing. So um, so to to me, I mean, I get all all the messages and all the hate and stuff, but ultimately, like, that's what it comes down to. And when everyone or many people in Newfoundland are doing the same thing, um, it only bodes well for our our footprint. Um, so so yeah, you're you're exactly right in in saying that. Not to mention, like, given the weather and the environment, this is the way to live. It's not like a, well, I could go vegan or, you know, become a fruititarian. Like, this is the way to live. Am I right? Or... Yeah, yeah, it sure is. And I mean, even if you think of places that aren't as isolated as, as Newfoundland, for example, even if you're in a big city, um, 
the the carbon footprint of things like vegetables can be extremely high when you look at your berries coming from Asia or wherever they come from like that needs to be transported somehow not to mention the fact that those farms were clear cut probably really great animal habitat had to be clear cut to produce those farms um so a lot of the hate that I that I get when I do get it, I just try to get that out there. Like before you come at me, just have a look at your interactions and 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 your how you use things and how you eat. And don't just think of it from when it's on your plate. Back up a bunch of steps. Where did it originate from? What land had to be had to be eliminated for that to be actually ending up on your plate? How did it get there? And after you're done, that plastic container that it's in, where does that end up? It ends up in the oceans and the landfills, and it'll kill many animals um, and create a huge carbon footprint. So um, there's, there's a lot of facets to it. And I think the more people think holistically and long term about what they put into their body and how it gets there, um, the more that they can understand that certainly in a place like where I am, um, hunting free range animals, uh, for, for food is, is where it's at really. Certainly. And, and it makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I'm not an environmentalist or an ecologist, but I do like to reduce the amount of footprint that I individually take. Like I always believe in each vote is a dollar, um, based on blood tests. I literally can't be vegan or vegetarian. Uh, but I am what they call a polotarian most mm-hmm. of the time, like meaning foul poultry and things like that. Sure. But I do believe and really like your analysis about the amount of footsteps before your plate and the amount of footsteps after your, your plate, because mm-hmm. a lot of people have this radical movement, like we need to all go vegan. And it's like, it's not so much vegan versus, you know, carnivorous lifestyles or omnivorous lifestyles. I think it's more about process versus pollution. Exactly. Or even even a locavore. Locavore is a great concept um, because you're using what's nearby and uh, and relying on that what's local and what doesn't require the transportation or the mass packaging or 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 all those things that are involved. I've never heard that, but I think a lot of us need to learn about locavoring. (laughs) Being a locavore. Um, Yes. And I mean, I really mean that like beyond food, just all of our consumption. Exactly uh, right. Because, like, you know, if you buy local coffee, you're reducing the amount of carbon footprint versus, you know, buying from a Starbucks. I don't know. Do they have Starbucks in Canada? They do. Yes. Okay, not, cool. not around, not in my small town, but oh, you a, exactly an, eight hour, an eight hour drive away. Yeah. yeah but you know exactly what <laughs> I, I do. Meant. Yes. Because it's like the amount of paper, like factory coffee produces versus a local coffee is so much higher. Uh, you know, supporting your local store that uses local items to create local products reduces the amount of waste. Local farms, everything like that. Yes. I definitely like love that you said that. Another thing that you said that really spoke to me was field to table versus farm to table. Is, Is the process the same? Uh, it's, I mean, it's pretty much the same. You can have, like I mentioned, there are some some farms that are doing it really well, and they're they're totally the epitome of what farming should be. Um, and for me, for me, the process is more about going out seeking your quarry, finding it, um, trying to think and act like the animal, um, making sure you know how it died, not 
not just that it died, but how it died and being okay with knowing that it did die quickly and like real, relatively pain-free, like they're out literally in seconds. And then being able to butcher it yourself, lug it out on your back most of the times and bring it right to your, your house. So certainly if you, you can sort of do that with farm to table, um, but, but field to table takes it that step further in that it's, it's kind of in, in your hands when and how and where that the harvest takes place. Gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, before we get into like your, your future and things like that, what is the physical training like to sustain a lifestyle of being a hunter? Yeah, so hunting and what's required can definitely vary based on the, the type of animal you're going after and the type of environment it's located in. I'm, I'm doing a lot of mountain hunts here lately, so it involves walking around almost 18 hours a day, usually with a, a weighted vest maybe of about 40 pounds on. Um, I'm, I'm like 125 pounds. So I walk around with a weighted vest of 40 pounds on for most of every single day. Um, so I can be prepared to lug what I need to lug um, once I've harvested the animal. Um, I, I actually have a, a circulation cardiovascular issue where I can't, um, I can't really I can't really work out and get my heart rate up because once it does, it, it kind of plummets and I tend to pass out. So I need to be able to just keep a slow pace so that I don't get out of breath. And as long as I don't push that boundary, I'm okay. But part of that is just wearing that vest all day, every day. So my legs and my body's used to just being normal with that extra weight on it. Um, my husband, he is he gets mad at me. He's like, Jen, you can eat whatever you want. You don't need to do a thing and you don't gain any weight. And he, if he looks at a pie, he gains 10 pounds, <laughs> but he, he spends a lot of time in the gym trying to train weight lift and, and cardio to be prepared for those moments when it's go time and you, you need to get where you need to be because the animal's presenting you with an opportunity. And if you miss that, then you miss the whole point of getting up there to, to get the animal. So, um, I mean, harvesting the animal is only one small part of why we hunt. We, we hunt to push our limits. We, we hunt to spend incredible time outdoors that you would never spend see, see places and water features and things that few other humans have laid eyes on. That's all part of it. But ultimately, um, our goal is to harvest an animal. So you need to have yourself in the best possible position physically and mentally to to make it happen when the opportunity presents itself true true because like you, you brought up the mooses and when you said like you know if i'm dragging a moose i was like thinking to myself like last time i checked at least in america the moose is the biggest animal in, in like the united states they're so, huge it takes a lot of trips it, it's, okay yeah it's not in one it's not in one go okay. no. you will go back and forth that bog dozens of times to try to get uh, all that meat out and is it just you and your husband or is it like typically a, like yeah, cousins typically. or whatever <laughs> well typically but um if you do get one down and you do need help getting it out 
there, people are just usually a phone call away. We'll get calls in the fall of the year. That's when the moose hunt happens in, in Newfoundland. And in the spring, typically that's where the bear hunts will often get calls. Someone say, I got a moose down here. I got a bear down here and need your help. And it's kind of like a community thing. Everyone jumps up from whatever they're doing in their houses. It's kind of like a fire drill or like a fire alarm. And everyone just rallies around to where that is to help the, the folks who have the animal down and uh, to get it out quickly. Cause you want to get it out um, as soon as you can, so you can get it in the cold so it can cool down and not spoil. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it's myself and my husband, we take a lot of trips, but often uh, it, it's, you hear of it all the time and we get it too. People call for help and everyone's eager to, to come in and assist. True. True. And like, what are your future goals that you would like to yeah, do with hunting? Um, I mean, I don't really have goals per se. Uh, we, again, we like to travel and combine that with the field to table of the different areas. So um, maybe travel to some different places and experience the cultures and stuff there. Um, for me, I have, we have a seven-year-old daughter um, and raising her the same way that I was raised with the whole reverence and respect for the animals and the field to table lifestyle and wild food is really important to me. Um, my background's in environmental biology. So um, what, when we're talking about things like carbon footprint or animal welfare or environmental science, that's really right up my alley. And it's what I studied in university. Um, so those things are really important to me that she that she understands it and she understands why we hunt and whether she decides to take part in it or not, that's totally her decision. But I want her to understand why we do it. And regardless of how she decides to to go about with hunting or not I want her life to be centered around um, animal welfare around environmental science around carbon footprint and making positive choices however she can best do that when she's older I'd like to ask from like a sustainability point of view how frequently like should you hunt in order to like you know be able to live and sustain yourself yeah, so um, it it really depends on how much you consume and how much you give to friends and family. So we're chronic gifters of dishes that we prepare, um, and and we love we love sharing it with our friends and family. Um, I, along with my health condition, as you mentioned, you have one as well. I am healthiest when I do eat meat, so I'm very meat heavy um, in in my diet. Um, like for example, today I had three meals and one of them was moose, one of them was deer and one of them was bear. So, um, we go through a lot of it in terms of sustainability, um, though, like large scale, um, hunts are conducted through permit systems through various governments. So the governments will do a survey, um, usually aerial surveys of areas to see how many of each different species there are, and they will, um, compute the the uh, the data, and they will decide how many the area needs to have removed of the certain type of animal for sustainability, or or whether it should even to begin with. Based on that, they'll issue a certain number of permits. So you can only hunt an animal if you have a permit for it. And the sustainability aspect comes into the government's deciding and the scientists deciding how many should be issued and whether the area can sustain that many. So um, it, even if we wanted to go try the meat of a certain animal, if there weren't permits issued because it wasn't deemed sustainable, we wouldn't want to for one, but second of all, we, we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to get a permit. Um, 
So, so that's really in, in the hands of the scientists and the, and the respective uh, people that make decisions in the different places. And is that decision-making unique to New Finland or is that mm-hmm. all of Canada? No, it, it's, it's the North American model of conservation, really. Um, so the, the scientists and the, and the uh, government bodies are aware of how many are in each location, how many the habitat is able to support, and how many can be removed to maintain that balance. Um, so all throughout North America, and I would say most 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 countries in the world um, would would go by would go by that. Gotcha, gotcha. To put everything in the context of what you just stated, people that hunt for game, like for fun, like I'm gonna go to the mountains and shoot deer. Is there a level of sustainability that goes into play like or are they actually breaking the law well anyone that goes and hunts deer would have a permit to do so gotcha well okay if they if they don't have a permit then it's poaching which is totally different than hunting so anytime you hear about hunters went and took out this many animals they weren't supposed to in my opinion and in the view of the hunting community that's not hunting at all that's poaching got it yeah. For the sake of your reputation and mine, I'm not keeping this. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. No, okay. that's totally fine. I don't want this interview to be like, oh, skip the 35 minutes. He's a real idiot. <laughs> no, no, no. And and I will say, like, the idea of like hunting for fun versus hunting for food, like they're not mutually exclusive. So like, you all you hear of trophy hunters being portrayed as these big bad people. Trophy hunting doesn't mean that you're not going to eat it. Tro- tr- and, and hunting for food doesn't mean that you're not going to bring the skin home to make a mount and honor the animal long after the meat is gone. Tro- the term trophy hunting or hunting for sport or for fun, trophy, that word comes in just to mean an animal that is older and that's past its prime, and that's probably close to its natural end of life anyway. That's where the term trophy comes in. It's kind of been abducted, I guess, by animal rights groups to take on this meaning that it's never intended to have. Trophy hunting came from hunters. Hunting bodies have used, have coined the term actually trophy hunting, but it just meant to mean the older and the bigger of the of the ones of the animals, which means that they're near their end of life and they've passed on their genetics to the past generation or the future generations. So um, that I, I really struggle with that term um, and the way it's been misportrayed. And uh, and like I said, if if my my sheep tag, for example, when I go wild sheep hunting, the tag I get says trophy sheep. But that doesn't mean I'm I'm going to just get a head on my wall. It means trophy sheep. I'm going after the older one that's near its end of the life. And then I can take the meat and take the skin and the horns if I want to take those pieces. But the meat is mandatory to take. Um, so so yeah, it's a it's it's a word I, I struggle with. Gotcha. And I mean, just like, you know, after breaking that down. Do you feel like the future of like, you know, reducing the carbon footprint for, you know, the world lies in ethical hunting and, and environmental based hunting? Um, it's certainly an avenue that, like there's no there's no way everyone in the world could 
could take up hunting. True. That's the, that's the but, thing, right? Yeah. There's just like I don't I don't think it's feasibly possible for everyone in the world to go vegan or plant based. I, I think I think the issue would be if people, which they're trying to do, try to eliminate hunting because that takes out a huge sustainable food source for millions of people and will be forcing them to go to to farm-based foods like like plants that will require mass destruction of many acres and hectares of prime animal habitat so so i don't think i don't think everyone can or should hunt for food but I do think when people do it and they stay within the realms of what's allowed, that it it's a huge bonus to health and to environment and to animals and to animal welfare as a whole and populations as a whole. Certainly, certainly. And and like the the point about like you hunt only older animals. Is there a training process to know which is old? Because like in my mind. Old just means gray fur, but like that's not the case. So well, it it, it can can just like yeah. we see in our just like we see in our pets, and you know their faces yeah. get grayer, yeah. and just like we see in ourselves, yeah. we get grayer. That is one indicator. Um, a, an indicator for animals with horns. Horns are different than antlers. Horns start growing when an animal is young, and they don't ever fall off. They they keep growing and stay on the animal. So with horns, you can actually, if you look through your binoculars or spotting scope, you can count the rings, the age rings on the horns, and you can tell how old a sheep or a cow or anything like that is. Anything with horns will have those age rings. Um, So that is an indicator of age. For antlers, um, typically animals with antlers that grow and lose them every year, you you can't like count the points or anything to tell how old they are because there's no correlation. When they have more mass to them, um, and that comes with experience being out in the field and seeing many of them, you can generally gauge the age of uh, of antlered animals like moose, caribou, elk, deer, things like that. And um, you know, sometimes when you have one that looks like he it's well in its prime because of his antlers, and you'll see one that the antlers aren't as great, but he's gray in the face and he's big bodied and, you know, he's older. Often you'll opt to go with the older one, just in the name of conservation and of knowing that that deer probably doesn't even have any teeth left. So he's probably not going to make it through the winter. And, um, you're, you're in a sense, saving him from having a horrible, horrible death at the, at the teeth of other animals. And you're getting to put him to good use in terms of filling your freezer and sustaining your family. Certainly, certainly. I definitely want to say thank you for your time and talking to me about the practice and the sustainability of hunting. You know, if someone wanted to like get started, how should they start? I get that question a lot um, because one of my goals is to get people into, into hunting if they're so inclined and if they're looking to reduce their carbon footprint in their food. Um, one thing I always recommend is if in your local area you have an archery club or maybe a, a gun range club, um, if you get introduced to that, um, because you do need to learn how to use one of those typically to, to go hunting. So you do need to get involved in that aspect. Um, people who are involved with archery or gun clubs are hunters, so they can help guide you. Also, um, on Facebook, for example, there are lots of learn to hunt groups. Um, 
or women that hunt or newbie hunters. If you search those keywords, sometimes you'll get put onto uh, different groups that are good. And like in our area, I know there are um, workshops. One is called Becoming an Outdoors Woman. One is called Learn to Hunt. Another is Learn to Fish. And you can sign up to those and you know you'll be participating with like-minded and new people so you don't need to feel embarrassed. Everyone's kind of starting on the same level and um, and just reaching out to, to people like me. Like I'm, I'm so happy to help and try to guide you as best as I can. And um, it's, it's really exciting to me and, and I enjoy it. So feel free to reach out. Indeed, indeed. And just for clarity, are you more of a shooter or uh, an archer? Because I do see that there's bows behind you. Yeah. So, um, I, I love, I love archery, um, because of the, the close nature that is absolutely required for, for archery. My, my comfortable range for archery is out to about 40 yards. So in order for me to harvest an animal with a bow, I need to be within 40 yards. Um, but I do enjoy, I'm really proficient um, with a rifle if I know I have time and the animal doesn't know I'm there and it's still, um, and I know I can deliver a really quick and effective shot. So I, I do, I do love that as well. And sometimes when you're in the mountains, just the prospect of getting in within 40 yards is not always possible. So if my goal is to come home with meat. And so that's my best chance of ensuring that it happens. So I love both of it. They're both totally different approaches, um, and it, it's all in your mindset going into it, really. Gotcha. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any organizations or people you'd like to give a shout to? Um, I'd like to just give a shout out to uh, organizations that help people and youth get into the outdoors. Raise Them Outdoors is one that uh, I, I really love. It's based in the United States and they put off camps for youth to get them into things like hunting and fishing and cooking and living off the land. Um, also here in Newfoundland, we just actually got permission from the government to be able to donate our wild game to um to our food banks. Uh, it's called Sharing the Harvest NL. And I'm so excited that that's an option for us now because it wasn't due to food um, safety issues and things like that. But now they've come on board and we're able to donate our wild game to food banks. So helping those in need with what we've harvested is just, it means the world to me. And I'm so excited about it. So those are two things, Raise Them Outdoors and Sharing the Harvest NL. Indeed. And those links will be in the description. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brian. It was a real pleasure. Take care. Hi, this is Brian from A Day Without Love. Thank you for listening to Dreams Not Memes. I just want you to remember, your dreams matter. If you'd like to support this podcast, email at daywithoutlove at gmail.com for donation information, or follow me for weekly episodes. Thank you for listening and joining my journey. Have a good day.